Season three of Black Belt Voices is brought to you by Southern Bancor. Southern Bancor is one of America's oldest and largest community development financial institutions. Founded to provide underserved communities with access to capital and the wealth building tools needed to grow. On the web at banksouthern.com and southernpartners.org. You're listening to the Black Belt Voices podcast, where we tell stories from and about Black folks down South. These stories honor our history. You know, they didn't have any problem enslaving children their age. So why would you have any problem teaching children that slavery existed and what slavery was really like? Celebrate our culture. Black Southerners are just like none other. I mean, we are just seasoned to perfection, honey. And shape our future. Voting is a form of currency. You have to use it. Well, welcome back. We're back and we're black. I'm Kayla Wilkins. And I'm Adina White. It's so good to be back. We had a little longer break than usual, but, you know, we're back in the in the recording chair. That's right. Good things come to those who wait. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and so we're excited to kick off season three of Black Belt Voices. And this season, we're exploring topics and bringing in subject matter experts, series style. So instead of you hearing about one thing one week and something else another week, you're going to get to see an overview of various topics that we will be discussing this year, like the cost of racism, farm to table, and issues that are around for the culture. But today, we're kicking off with episode one about preserving our history. That's right. We're bringing a little more, a little structure to our, to our topics. And so we're starting with a look back and a look ahead. And I recently talked to documentary filmmakers, Yoruba Richin and Brad Lichtenstein. I was just working on my bike right here. Uh, I heard the explosion in my mind. Like, what is that? I never heard anything like that before. Truck exploded a couple to three houses down the street. I couldn't believe it in my mind that it was my father, but I know it was his truck. American Reckoning is the latest component of PBS Frontline's Unresolved. It is a multi-platform initiative investigating murders that happened in the civil rights era that have not been solved. Some are well-known. Cases like Emmett Till, Megar Evans, the four little girls in the Birmingham church. But in 2008, 150 more victims were brought to light thanks to the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act. One of those cases is the 1967 killing of NAACP leader Warless Jackson Sr. in Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, When I sat down with the two filmmakers about this documentary, they uncovered parts of his story that the public has never heard until this project. I am Yoruba Richin, and I am a documentary filmmaker. So I feel like it's a really layered story that uh, tells us so much about where we are in terms of, um, you know, looking at, in terms of our history, in terms of what's buried about our history, and in terms of 
uh, the 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 pursuit of justice uh, for racial terror, which we are still, uh, you know, we are, we're still trying to to find justice and answers. Uh, I'm Brad Lichtenstein, and I am a filmmaker. And on this project, I am co-producer, co-director with Yoruba Richin on American Reckoning. Brad and Yoruba are both veterans in this field. But Adina, you talked about them having very interesting backgrounds. Yes, they do. Uh, Yoruba grew up in New York City, and she was heavy into theater. In fact, her mom was a playwright. So she was always interested in documentaries, but she never considered that a career. But in the late 90s, cameras became smaller, not as small as the ones we have today, and more consumer friendly. And she started making videos. And she found that she loved being behind the camera. And I just found that documentary film was a great way to uh, to put together my interests in social issues and social justice and in telling a story and being creative. So literally from my first uh, first video that I did, I um, it was like an aha moment. Uh, it just really, really meshed uh, with me. And I kind of never looked back. Now, Brad worked for Congressman John Lewis during his 1986 election campaign. He went to Washington with Representative Lewis as one of his interns. Um, Brad learned a lot during his time working with uh, Representative Lewis, including a lot about some of the cold cases that eventually led to the Emmett Till Act and the project that Brad's working on now. How I got into filmmaking is kind of connected, too, because um, that year for me, my senior year in high school, when I worked for him, was sort of a sea change. Um, I grew up in Atlanta and um, I was kind of socially, social justice minded, but I don't think I really understood particularly uh, matters around race and justice in America until I really became immersed in John Lewis's campaign and met lots of people and learned about their stories and their lives. Um, And, you know, I was often the only white person in the room in a lot of spaces um, and, you know, was was learning. I was learning. Um, And then sort of by happenstance, um, I ended up working for this place called Southern Regional Council in Atlanta, which is a civil rights organization that Mr. Lewis worked for. Um, He had ran the voter education project out of Southern Regional Council. And then, you know, so many years later, I think almost 20, um, I was working there doing also some uh, projects related to representation and equity, particularly in, um, in the electoral system. And um, when I was there, I met uh, two filmmakers, one who um, still very good friends with, her name is Judith Helfand, wonderful filmmaker, um, who Yoruba knows too. And um, her professor, George Stoney, um, who uh, was the chair of the documentary department at NYU. And then to make a really long story short, um, I ended up at NYU studying philosophy and I never finished. I was a failed PhD candidate, but I went over and um, reconnected with Judith and George and said, you know, tell me about documentary filmmaking. And um, George got me my first internship um, and you know, so it goes. Okay, so let's talk about this Emmett Till Act because, Adina, I think people 
uh, assume that you and I are experts on anything that we bring onto the podcast. And that is not true. I honestly have not or had not heard about the Emmett Till Act until uh, talking to Brad in Yoruba. And it is a recent act, actually, something that was passed, um, you know, during our time. And it was just interesting to hear about and learn about because I didn't even know this existed and was on the books. Right. And part of the reasons that we love talking to people on this podcast is so we can learn things that we didn't know about. So, like, I also had no idea about the Emmett Till Act. And um, and I learned a lot more about it by talking to Brandon Yoruba. So for a little background, Congressman John Lewis introduced the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act back in 2007. So it allowed cold cases of suspected violent crimes against African-Americans before 1970 to be reopened. Uh, the Senate unanimously passed the legislation in 2008, and President Bush signed it into law on October 7th, which was 13 years ago last week, actually. I think the origins are really interesting in that Congressman Lewis, uh, obviously from uh, Georgia, uh, grew up with the shadow, you know, knowing uh, he talks about this in, in our film and, and other places about uh, Emmett Till and what how it affected him. Every bill is a compromise, right? And we see the sort of problems with Washington and, you know, getting a bill passed. And the this bill was no exception. And in fact, Congressman Lewis, what his real dream was, was to have a Truth and Reconciliation Act, similar to a commission, similar to what they did in South Africa. Uh, now, of course, you know, that wasn't perfect either, but at least a forum where the truth comes out, where you have people from the, not only the victims and the perpetrators saying what happened, admitting what happened. So people can have, whether it be, you know, some kind of, um, some kind of closure or just information um, as opposed to your loved one dying and it just be in a cloud of, you know, mystery. Um, so that's really what he won. But as we know, in this country, uh, that was going to be basically impossible to do. Um, it's obviously what is needed. I mean, I think, you know, so many of us agree that's what's needed in this country. So going back to Warless Jackson Sr., the man who is the subject of this film, Dina, what do we know about him? I mean, what do we know about his family life and what do we think possibly led to him actually being murdered? Well, he was a husband. He was a family man with five children and he was a hard worker. But it's his activism that got him killed by white supremacists. In the documentary, Yoruba and Brad look beyond Warless's personal story and they go into the events happening in Natchez, Mississippi at that time. But the short version is that Warless became involved with the NAACP and became secretary. The president of the NAACP was George Metcalf. George and Warless were both employed at the Armstrong Tire and Rubber Company, as well as they were involved in desegregation efforts in the city. And of course, they were met with resistance. Meanwhile, there's an uh, organization, uh, an offshoot of the KKK called the Silver, Do Silver Dollar Group, um, who have, um, in response to all of the stuff that's happening uh, in Mississippi in terms of uh, uh, Medgar Evers um, and his work on voting rights and, and integration of the University of Mississippi, uh, the passage of the Civil Rights uh, 
Act and the Voting Act. So this is all happening in the early 60s. And the Silver Dollar Group forms because because of what's happening. And they want to be able to, they think the KKK uh, is too, um, you know, too, uh, (laughs) too lenient, essentially. They want to be able to perpetuate their acts of violence without having to go to the leader. And they want to be able to act as a kind of rogue organization. And so um, they form uh, at this time as well. And uh, with these, uh, with the push that's happening by the NACP, they, uh, and George Metcalf leading it, they try to kill George Metcalf and they, they bomb him. Um, He is uh, uh, bombed in his car and ends up surviving. Now the tire company they're working at also had members of the KKK and the Silver Dollar Group working there. And some of the Black men there, they're getting positions that the white folks used to get. And so the bombing galvanized the city. Organizers came in to help them line out the nine demands, including police reform. They also uh, start an economic boycott of white businesses. And um, this economic boycott of white businesses is very, very effective. And the deacons help enforce that boycott and they help enforce it by you know making sure black people don't don't break it essentially, um, so they're protecting the community, they're enforcing the boycott, and the white business you know white businesses are totally um, affected by this. And eventually, you know, only a couple months later, they give in to the demands, and um, and which is a victory and actually a model for how boycotts happen in other parts of the South. Um, to stop, you know, to, to get rid of segregation. So that's in 1967, right? At the beginning of 67, um, that the economic boycott uh, is effective and they give in to the demands. Meanwhile, uh, Warless Jackson gets a promotion at Armstrong and it's supposed to have been, you know, as in their parlance, this was, you know, supposed to be a job of a, of a white guy a white man. So it's from what we can tell in the reporting that we're working with a local reporter there who's really dug into this story that they were mad that he got the white man's job. The, uh, you know, the segregation, they, the, the, the African-American community won their demands and they were pissed that Metcalf, that they hadn't killed Metcalf. And so another bomb was planted um, and we believe that it was probably meant for Metcalf. Meanwhile, also too, Warless and Metcalf. Warless was taking uh, Metcalf back and forth to work. He was like he was with him, uh, much to the consternation of Jackson's family because they knew it was dangerous. And another bomb was planted in '67, and this bomb was the one that killed uh, Warless Senior. Unfortunately, what happened to Warless is not all too dissimilar to what we know was happening around the country during that time. Successful economic boycotts really were seen as a threat in a lot of communities because people felt like if Black people were able to successfully rally around stopping people from getting money or that they were going to take their jobs or anything that was kind of a threat to equality through the boycotts really was what pushed a lot of people to then, you know, plant bombs and riot and do other things because they were concerned about Black people being more economically viable. Yes. And as we know, 
a lot of times economic boycotts lead to arrest, even, even when they're peaceful. So uh, lots of protesters were arrested, including Royalist's wife, Exerlina. So activism was all in their family. The protesters were taken to the infamous Parchman Prison, which probably needs its own episode because of its history. They were tortured. They were stripped naked. They were sprayed with hoses and crowded into cells and given laxatives. Uh, that was an ordeal that lasted several days and nights um, and included children as well. So where is the investigation today, Dina? Well, one of the first things investigators do in reopening a file like this is go back to the original case files and try to talk to the original agents on the case. Brad talked to one living agent for a documentary. The night of Orlis's murder, it was raining. And unfortunately, that made it difficult to investigate because some of the evidence had been washed away. It really was not that many days before a prime suspect emerged. Um, and his name is Red Glover. And the theory that, that uh, most who have investigated this believe is that he is the one who planted the bomb. He was a member of the Silver Dollar Group. Um, he was angry that the bomb that most people believe he planted uh, for George Metcalf did not kill George Metcalf. Um, and that even part of the theory goes that he was probably hoping that George Metcalf would be in that truck that night as well, because Whirlist always gave Metcalf a ride home. That night, he had worked extra hours. And so Metcalf was not in the truck with him that night. Um, but um, there's also, you know, we hear this from our local reporter who had a relationship with the main investigator from that time, who in all the time passage, unfortunately, um, he died. I believe he died in 2012. I remember the Emmett Till Act really got into full force in 2008. So past 2007 or so, full force in 2008. Four years went by that they could have talked to um, to uh, this man, Pfeiffer, who was the lead agent in the case. Um, he did talk to Stanley Nelson, the reporter that we work with down there a lot. Um, and also, you know, Yoruba and I have had access to all of the case file. It's over 8,000 documents um, from photos to testimony from all the people that were being interviewed at the time, including the Jackson family, um, you know, to all of these reports that the FBI writes up um, about the case. So bottom line is that they probably could not have uh, gotten accountability in the 2000s because Red Glover, the man who um, the theory goes is the person who did it, had already passed away. Um, but there were family members that they could have talked to also that they never talked to. Um, and, you know, I guess it points to the overall dissatisfaction of this whole process, which is if you define justice merely as holding someone accountable, not that that's not important, but if you only define it that way, um, then inevitably it's going to fall short of what justice could really be in these cases. This production and a lot of the other projects Ruba and Brad are working on has a lasting impact on the two of them. We've talked about trauma. Uh, and, uh, you know, how that's buried a lot of our history, but it's another thing also to see. And when you're, when you're interviewing, um, you know, and, and talking and, uh, with the family members to see how the trauma plays out, um, in both, uh, you know, their emotion and also the events of their lives. Um, 
we should say too that the Silver Dollar Group uh, are linked to a bunch of other murders uh, uh, from in the area, uh, which we get into a little bit too in the film. And you know, we've talked to not only Warless's family and how they're dealing with it, but uh, another a daughter of another um, a man who was who was uh, fire was set uh, set to his shop and was killed. Um, and how that impacted her family, a black man, a business owner um, who was very prominent in the community. Uh, and, you know, so that impact of um, of seeing that generational trauma was really emotionally, you know, uh, uh, definitely was a, a emo- like brought up a lot for me um, when we were interviewing these these family members. You know, in the course of making films like this. Um, you just, you become close to people. And, you know, I, I think this is true for me and Yoruba. You know, there are lots of people that we've met through our work, um, which for me is one of one of the great joys of doing work like this, who become lifelong friends. Um, and how can you not? Because you're you're telling such an intimate story. You know, for me personally, it becomes part of the personal responsibility of doing this kind of work. Um, you know, I want to make sure that we're telling a story that has integrity, um, an integrity that's defined in many ways in terms of the families who are who are allowing us to to tell these stories. So I want viewers to take away kind of like a summary of our whole conversation that we just had. You know, what is it that we can what is it that this country uh, can do? to hold accountable these crimes uh, of, you know, the, 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 these crimes uh, perpetuated on the Black community, on the African-American community. How can we, um, how can we uh, open up minds uh, to understanding our history? And I think people are, you know, I think people sometimes people can surprise you i was just not to digress for a minute but i was just in um the georgia sea islands uh on vacation and we were talking to a a white couple who's from there and we were talking about the history of the geely the 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 gullah geechee gullah uh community we just gone to this little like african-american museum in saint simon's island this little you know little place that they um and we're learning about the, the the culture and the history you know which is a very deep history in that area and the guy said and you know we don't know where you know we were just chatting and having a, a you know vacation talk and they said you know the white couple said oh school me about this i don't know this history um and we were and they're from georgia you know not that far so it was just a one of those times where I was like, okay, you know, may like people do want this history. Americans want to know their history. Um, obviously there's a lot of resistance to it and it's racial and it's about white supremacy, but there's also uh, a desire for it. So that's what I hope people will take away. will be open to understanding, you know, what the, the history of this country. America is very separate. We know that. And um, and so it's true with audiences, too. And I think, um, you know, without overgeneralizing, Black audiences and white audiences are going to have different experiences of this film. And so for me, what I think a lot about is, you know, how to tell a story that's going to resonate with both and not compromise 
I guess, the intelligence and the experiences of either audience. And then speaking, you know, as a white filmmaker in this team, I mean, Yoruba, I think, has issued a great challenge to our entire industry and to me personally around telling the stories of white supremacy. And, you know, I feel like I always like think of how I grew up when I'm thinking about the white audience. You know, I grew up in Atlanta, but my family did not have any close black friends. And I mentioned John Lewis, you know, that was such a watershed moment for me at the age of 15 because I really had not been immersed in any kind of black community until that time. And so I think I have some insight and understanding of why and how white supremacy is able to resist change and is perpetuated because, you know, the condition of our country and where power is vested and in terms of how separate we are, uh, perpetuates the ability to keep telling this narrative from uh, of America from a white perspective. And so I feel like our film hopefully is chinking away at that. You know, America always presents itself in mainstream media as, you know, this the shining city on a hill. And white terror has been a part of this country since the beginning. A takeaway, I would say, is for white audiences is I really hope that they will watch this and start asking these questions about, you know, how have I told myself a myth? How have I benefited from a myth? Because that is the scaffolding, you know, for the white supremacist narrative. And you, you got to dismantle it yourself. You know, nobody's going to do it for you. We're so grateful Yoruba and Brad made time in their busy schedules to chat with us. They actually talked to us in between production meetings. And they were so generous with, with giving us their perspective. American Reckoning will premiere on Frontline PBS in November. The documentary is the latest component in Frontline's ongoing Unresolved Project, which is a multi-platform investigation of civil rights era cold case murders. The project includes an interactive web experience, a podcast, educational curriculum, and more. Tune in next time for more episodes in our Preserving Our History series, including a sit-down with Keith Fletcher from the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center located in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. You can also listen to the Black Belt Voices podcast on most streaming platforms, including Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and NPR One. This episode was edited by Katrina Dupins and Prentice Dupins Jr. with music composed by Prentice Dupins Jr. Black Belt Voices is a production of Black Belt Media, LLC. Thanks again to Seven Bank Corps for underwriting our third season. Be sure to follow Black Belt Voices on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Belt Voices and visit blackbeltvoices.com.